Hello and welcome to today's episode of the Surgibots podcast. In this episode, we speak to Greg Fisher, the CEO of a company called AIM Medical Robotics. AIM produced an MRI-compatible robot for applications in neurosurgery and other surgical applications. In this episode, we talk about many different things, including Greg spinning out this company after 15 years of academic research, his expertise, protecting IP, where the company's growing, and many other things that are really interesting, especially to anyone who's an engineer. So sit back and enjoy this episode. Hi, Greg, and welcome to the Surgibots podcast. Well, thank you very much for having me, Henry. Cool. So to kick things off, can you give me your background? Who are you and what do you do? Sure. Well, um, my name is Greg Fisher. Um, I have been a, a researcher and a faculty member for the last 15 years uh, over at Worcester Polytechnic Institute. And while we were there, we developed all sorts of amazing technology related to MRI, compatible surgical robotics, ways we can use real-time medical imaging to guide surgical procedures. Uh, and all of this technology that we've worked on over the last approximately 15 years, probably close to $15 million of funding that we've had through government funding, we've decided to go ahead and commercialize this. Uh, so in 2018, uh, A Medical Robotics was founded, uh, and I'm currently the CEO of the company, uh, and I'm taking this job full-time so that we can really push forward on the uh, technical development and uh, get this uh, neurosurgery robot we're working on to market as soon as possible. Cool. So how did you get into this in the first place? So, you know, I've been involved in uh, medical devices since uh, pretty much as long as I can remember. In fact, uh, my father was a medical device engineer for uh, Johnson & Johnson, actually worked at uh, Ethicon, uh, you know, way back in the day. Um, and then even in my undergraduate, my senior design projects were related to uh, smart surgical drills to uh, help with uh, pedicle school placement. So this is something that's really been in my, uh, you know, blood, if you will, for quite some time. Uh, I studied my PhD at Johns Hopkins as part of the uh, Computer Grade Surgery Engineering Research Center, which was a large National Science Foundation funded research center dedicated to surgical robotics and the like. Uh, and that's really where I started getting into MRI guided interventions. Uh, what excited me most about this was, you know, as an engineer, you think of what does closed loop mean, right? You want to use feedback to make sure you do a procedure uh, the way you intended. And what happens a lot of times is you spend a lot of time uh, doing surgical planning right, during a, for a procedure for a given patient. Uh, but by the time you get to the procedure, things have moved, things have changed. And that's especially true when you're working on, you know, soft tissues. So the idea of being able to use real-time imaging during a procedure to make sure it does exactly what you want to do and you actually perform the intervention the way you want to, to me, that was incredibly appealing. And then going into the MRI side, it's one of those things that it's almost the worst case scenario. If you can make something that works in MRI, it's going to work anywhere else. We can use it in an operating room. We can use it on CT. We can use it in ultrasound. So it's been really, really exciting to uh, really try to tackle that problem. And that's what I've been working on since pretty much the beginning of my graduate school days, through my faculty days, and now um, through the uh, corporate development side of things. Okay. So how did the company actually spin out of research? Tell me a bit about the story there. Yeah, absolutely. So this is technology that we've been working on for, as I said, it's been probably about 15 years um, on the academic research side. We actually started doing development in MRI guide interventions for uh, prostate applications, prostate cancer applications, and we had a lot of success there. We actually worked with the Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. We had a 30-patient human study with this. It was a collaboration between uh, Worcester Polytechnic Institute, which is where um, I'd been a faculty member, um, Johns Hopkins University, and uh, Harvard Medical School through the uh, Brigham and Women's Hospital. Uh, and it was a very, very exciting project. And then I'd say 10 to 15 years ago, uh, I started working with uh, Dr. Julie Politzis, who's now the uh, co-founder of uh, the company, uh, as well as now she's the dean of the medical school at Florida Atlantic University down in uh, Florida. 
Um, and the idea here is that we wanted to figure ways to do better um, surgical interventions for neurosurgery applications, right? So how can we use real-time imaging to make sure you insert an applicator, insert a probe in exactly the right spot, even if there is brain shift or tissue deformation or anything like that? Uh, so we started looking at this for a deep brain stimulation. And then ultimately what happened was we got um, a large NIH uh, R01 grant. So these are about three and a half million dollar grants uh, for cancer care. And the idea here is we wanted to do thermal ablation for deep brain tumors. And you can use the MRI to figure out the boundary of the tumor. And then we can also use the MRI to guide and place the applicator and then watch the delivery of the uh, therapy. In this case, looking at the thermal dose delivery and guaranteeing that it works. Um, so along that journey, we uh, filed a number of patents. We had a, a lot of IP that we developed. We also had a, a follow-on grant for another $3.5 million for the neurosurgery work. And then, as I mentioned, around 2008 is when we incorporated A-Medical Robotics. Uh, we were working with uh, a banker and some other business folks at the time that were really excited about this technology. They licensed the technology into a, a newly formed company. Um, that company really took on uh, a life of its own. We've been developing for the last few years, and, and I'm really excited that as of February of this year, uh, I stepped in as uh, the full-time CEO of the company so that we can really, really take this uh, focus on the commercial development and try to get this product built and launched, uh, hopefully within the next you know one to two years. Cool. So in simplistic terms, can you tell me what, what does AIM Medical Robotics actually do? What does their robotics system actually actually do? Yeah, no, that's a that's a really good question here. So the idea is that we want to put robots inside of an MRI scanner so you can guarantee that you place an instrument or a tool in exactly the right spot. So you can think of a scenario like the brain stimulation for Parkinson's disease, where they typically put two electrodes uh, deep inside the brain. A lot of times it's going to the uh, subthalamic nucleus. Sometimes there's some other targets. These are very tiny targets, and you need to make sure that you put the end of this applicator in exactly the right spot. Uh, in fact, a lot of the ways that they do this now in an operating room is they have this supplemental step of micro electrode recording. So they'll put uh, these electrodes in and they'll essentially listen for, you know, buzzing sounds to make sure that they're getting the right exact electrical activity. Then they pull that out and then they stick the other um, more permanent probe inside. And that can be, in some cases, an hour to two hours of extra time. There's extra personnel. Often there's a neurologist that's in the room doing this part of the procedure. Uh, and the reason for that is primarily that you can't get the accuracy or you can't guarantee that you're going to be in the target based purely on what's available in the operating room. So by taking this procedure and putting it inside an MRI scanner, which is the standard of care for doing the surgical planning, every one of these procedures is planned on preoperative MRI, we can use iterative intraoperative MRI to look at shifts in the brain. So for example, if I want to put something in the brain, uh, if you drill a hole, you know, it's intuitively, it's going to actually sag a little bit as the cerebral spinal fluid, the liquid that's around your brain, uh, falls out, right? Or it drips out. Uh, similarly, if you start poking at the brain, just like anything else, you know, imagine you get punched in the arm, you're going to get swelling, right? Tissue swelling, things move, things change. So working on these stale images, if you will, from before a procedure, you know, it may be great to get a targeting relative to the skull. And that's how a lot of these systems, they can give you perfect targeting almost with respect to the skull. It's not really giving you perfect targeting relative to the soft tissue anatomy inside your brain. And, and that same thing applies to uh, abdominal anatomy and other parts of the body um, as well that we'll look into in the future. So essentially the idea here is that we want to be able to take these probes, and in this case it's deep brain stimulation for Parkinson's disease, but the same thing is true if you're trying to take a targeted biopsy. The same thing would be true if you're trying to do thermal ablation, which is essentially sticking a needle. Uh, it can have fiber optics on it, or it can have ultrasound elements on it that's trying to burn tissue. In all of these cases, you want to get the applicator in exactly the right spot relative 
to the anatomical structures of of the brain. So that's where our robot can can really help. Okay, fantastic. So why is it such a challenge to make a robot that is MRI compatible? So the engineer in me is very excited about building robots that can go inside an MRI scanner. You know, if you think of um, a motor, right, an electric motor, that's the heart of most um, uh, robots, right? It's what a steel can, a coil of wire, and a magnet. Those are probably about the three worst things you could put inside an MRI scanner. So it's really, really exciting to think about, you know, how can we come up with new and innovative technologies that let us put robots inside an MRI scanner and not just put them in or near an MRI scanner, but not have them affect the imaging of the MRI scanner as well. So, you know, the safety is a given. Obviously, we want to make sure we don't put anything that's going to be ferrous and have, you know, a projectile effect that could damage or hurt a patient, right? Um, there's also other factors, things like uh, resonance within the wires that can cause heating. That's the reason why you would usually take off jewelry and other things uh, when you're doing the uh, MR imaging procedures because you don't want to get this heating. But on top of that, we want to find ways that we don't actually distort um, the images or create uh, electrical noise. And that's a really, really big problem. If you were to go take uh, you know, any standard electronics and throw them in an MRI room, and I tested this with just a laptop power supply at one point, you, know, you ins- essentially get an old, like an old static ETV image is what it looks like, or you'll end up with streaking or other issues and artifacts. So the large majority of my research over the last, I'd say close to 15 years has been, how can we put piezoelectric actuators? So essentially ceramic actuators inside an MRI scanner and get really high precision motion um, in a very compact form factor without affecting electrical activity. But on that front, you know, I've really tried to give every actuation technology uh, a fair shake. In fact, my uh, PhD uh, dissertation was on using air-powered pneumatic robots uh, inside MRI. So, you know, I spent many years of my life doing that. I think it should be somewhat telling that I've uh, since that point pivoted into the uh, piezoelectric space. I think there's huge advantages to going in, in that direction. Uh, that being said, we've certainly tried that, and there are some use cases where I think that's ideal. We've tried, you know, dielectric elastomer actuators, which are essentially just really high high voltages that you put across pieces of rubber to make them move. Again, they're really cool technologies that are MRI compatible. They might have some applications in haptics and force feedback, but they're not really practical for this type of motion. We've looked at hydraulics. Uh, you know, I think those things can be really good if you're looking at rehabilitation robotics, and a lot of times, like fMRI, for example, of you want to move somebody's hand while you're looking at, you know, functional maps of the brain. But for surgical applications, we really feel very strongly that this piezoelectric approach is the way to go. Okay, fantastic. So you said that you're all, uh, but you are now the CEO of AIM. So tell me about your journey. So when you joined the company, what were you doing when you first spun out? And then what, how has that changed now you're CEO? Yeah, so, uh, you know, obviously I've always been involved in the in the company in one way or another. The technology that the company based on is primarily patents that I developed in my uh, academic life, uh, along with some of my collaborators and the students that we've been working with in the lab. Um, so I've been acting in more or less an advisory role for the last, you know, few years. I was the chief science advisor of the company. I wasn't very involved in a lot of the development efforts, but I wasn't the one leading these. Uh, and we really got to a point in the company where uh, we decided that we really need to make sure we put all of our efforts into developing the actual core technology that we're working on here. You know, a lot of our uh, earlier funding went into working with uh, design firms and contract manufacturers. And, you know, that worked well for building these initial prototypes of what it looks like, what it feels like. But we felt it was mission critical for us to bring what we thought was really the, the meat, if you will, the important part of our technology in-house. Uh, so what we're trying to do now is really pivoting and bringing, building up a very strong engineering team as well as the business development team within the company. So now uh, 
you know, as of, you know, the spring into the summer, we're going to have about a half dozen uh, engineers working on this where we can really take this expertise, bring it in-house, um, build upon it, and that gives us much better ability to modify and tweak and really optimize the designs. Uh, and also, we're trying to build a company, not just, you know, the first product we're trying to get to market here, because we're likely going to have additional indications, additional accessories, uh, and it's really, really important for us to build up, you know, internally these resources. So that was the main impetus behind you know, me stepping in and taking the role is that we wanted to have a strong technical focus without obviously losing, uh, you know, our direction on the business side as well. So it's important that we build this device, build the prototypes, have really strong plans for our experiments. Uh, at the same time, we're strongly focused on the regulatory pathway, the reimbursement pathway, what we're going to be doing for our ZNV studies, um, getting our user experience studies in place. Uh, and then also, uh, again, through all of this, thinking about what's the manufacturing process and making sure we're designing this appropriately so we can scale it up appropriately and, and manufacture it and sell it. And then on top of that also, it's really important that we continue to build a strong IP portfolio. So all these pieces, you know, they all build around getting the system up and running and built. And that's why we took this uh, kind of change of path here to really focus on the technical development and, and bring me back in since uh, you know I've really been involved since the beginning on getting the initial technology designed. Okay. So what are the big projects and milestones that you're currently working on? So, uh, you know, up to this point, we have, uh, you know, our initial, um, we call it the first commercial prototype. Uh, and that's what some people might have seen in our uh, pictures, presentations, videos that are out there. Uh, what we're working on right now and what I anticipate having within the next uh, two months or so is what we would call our beta prototype. And this is our next version of the commercial system. The idea here is this is going to look, feel, operate, and really just behave very much like what we anticipate our commercial system working working like. And this is going to let us do preclinical studies this summer, which I'm really excited about. We anticipate beginning cadaver studies uh, this summer. Uh, we're also looking to use this for these user experience studies. So I want to start bringing in as many clinicians as possible. We have a really strong uh, clinical advisory board that's been giving us feedback along the way, but we want to get this in their hands, get as much feedback as we can, as well as bring in a uh, really broad spectrum of people from different backgrounds in the neurosurgery space to make sure we're on the right path and really formalize what our you know, requirements are, what the user needs are before we go into the official clinical version of the robot, essentially. Uh, and then this device, we anticipate also do running all of the safety testing and our goal and the end of the upcoming uh, round that we're focused on is really trying to get to a first in human studies, primarily under uh, an IRB at a single site. And that's going to be this huge launching point for us to demonstrate that, look, this really does work. There is huge benefit for it. And this workflow that we're uh, proposing really has a tremendous amount of uh, benefit and advantage to both the patient and the clinicians. Okay. So let's, let's talk about the robot then in terms of how it benefits different parties. So how does it benefit the patient? You've touched on that already a little bit, but how does it benefit the patient, the surgeon, and also the health system? Yeah, absolutely. That's a really, really important question. That's been fundamental to us really since the beginning. So first off, uh, you know, when we're talking about the robot here, what I want to get across is this is a very compact device. It's very portable. Think of a standard stereotactic frame. It's usually a metal frame that goes over your head. Uh, essentially, it's a robotic version of that or an actuated version of that um, that's very, very portable. And it also happens to be compatible with the MRI environment. So we can put this in the MRI scanner and use it while we're imaging. So this whole system is very portable. You could have it from, you know, in a case in the closet to on the bed and ready for use in a patient in, I would say, under 30 minutes. I know our earlier iteration when we did these prostate studies, so we actually timed it and it was less than 30 minutes from, you know, buried in the back of a closet to being on the bed and ready for the patient. 
um, and it has no requirements on the MRI room itself. So we can put this into any MRI room. There's no need to add custom patch panels, passing wires through there, nothing permanently installed in the room. So we can pick this up and really bring it anywhere. In fact, uh, for some of our initial testing, we've been putting this in a you know, Pelican case and flying around and showing it to folks. And we can even do the same thing with the functional robot and set it up pretty much anywhere in an operating room or an MRI, um, an MRI suite here. Um, so uh, as far as the benefit to the patient goes, think of something like deep brain stimulation. The typical procedure is they go to an operating room uh, the patient is actually awake uh, because they need to make sure that they're in the right spot and they want to either be asking questions or seeing if the patient's hand is moving. So you can imagine drilling a hole in a patient's head while they're awake. Obviously, they're uh, you know out of it, but they're still awake, and that scares off uh, a lot of patients. So for deep brain stimulation, we can do asleep procedures completely within the MRI environment. Uh, doing that, you know, one, it allows the patients to be asleep, so it's a more streamlined, easier procedure. Um, they're much more accepting uh, of that as well. There's a lot of patients that actually decline this procedure because they really don't want to do this uh, awake. Um, but also, we get the real-time MRI imaging, which guarantees that we're in the right target, uh, right position based purely on the MR imaging. And one of the huge advantages for that is it can reduce the, uh, well, first it's going to increase the effectiveness, but it can also reduce the chance of revisions. And there's a you know, varying rates in the different literature out there of what the revision rates are, but it's not insignificant. And revision means they have to go back and essentially get another surgical procedure. So we can avoid that. The other advantage to this for the patients is we can make this procedure much, much faster. So our goal is really to streamline the workflow. In fact, that's probably one of our most important aspects of this is getting this workflow down to the point that everything can go as fast and as smooth as possible while being as accurate and, you know, also reducing any chance of you know, human errors along the way. Right. So if we can get this procedure down to, let's say, you know, a three-hour procedure instead of what was a six- or seven-hour procedure, now you can double the throughput. So for patients, that can get patients off wait lists faster, get them into the procedures faster. But you can imagine that's probably the, the biggest benefit to hospitals and surgeons is they can effectively double the throughput of their procedures in this scenario. So we can be getting, you know, two procedures a day instead of one for, let's say, a deep brain stimulation lead placement. Uh, again, the other advantage for um, surgeons is this can help uh, streamline the workflow to them. It can reduce the time, as I said, but also we're, we also think about like the cognitive load on the surgeons. We want them to be as focused on what's most important and where their level of expertise is. And I want them to be focused on what they really have a tremendous amount of knowledge on, which is what is the exact spot this is supposed to be and let's make sure we get it there. And if we can really take care of a lot of the other aspects, like making sure the robot is actually aligned to that position without having to you know, yell numbers across the room as somebody turns a stereotactic frame and locks it and double checks that every little manually adjusted thing is correct just for them to be able to move it out of the way so they can drill it and have to do that all over again. You know, I think there's a lot of reasons why we can reduce error, reduce cognitive load, but still let the surgeons do what we feel is really the most important part of where their contribution is the most relevant, which is knowing exactly what needs to be done. So it's really about how do you implement these procedures the way you want to. And then again, from the hospital's perspective, being able to take this and use it in any different type of MRI scanner or operating room. So we can work in a traditional OR. We can work in an OR with uh, some of these new and emerging low and midfield MR scanners, especially ones that can be turned on and off. Uh, we can work in a traditional diagnostic magnet, so 1.5T or a 3T diagnostic magnet. And to me, that's a huge uh, opportunity because there's an enormous installed base and we can get this advantage of the real-time imaging without having to have customized suites. Uh, and then, of course, we can work in... Um, a lot of these specialized interventional MRI suites as well, and that's those places are specifically designed for doing these kinds of procedures. But even in the operating room, we don't get the real-time imaging. Um, 
but you still have this workflow advantage. So using this still has advantages over even a Lexel frame or some of the competing robotic systems that are out there because it's very fast to set up, very easy to use, and it effectively just automatically does all of the alignment and checking for you. But of course, the, the biggest advantage comes when we can use real-time feedback to make sure you're actually doing what you, you think you're doing. Cool. You mentioned other robotic systems. What is your price point compared to some of these other competitors? I know that Rose is one of them. You've got a few different robotic competitors. What, where do you sit in, in that comparison? So um, I would tell you, the, in the operating room space, the closest competitor that I can think of would be something like the uh, the Rosa. And there, you know, really there's a much larger cart or gantry type system, right, that has to be wheeled in. And there's typically a very long setup time. Uh, usually there's a rep from the company that helps to make this uh, come together. And, you know, from our experiences watching these procedures, you know, once it's in place, it works really well for doing targeting relative to the rigid anatomy. So again, you can get very high precision relative to the skull. Um, but one, it took a long time to set it up and get us there. Uh, and two, as I mentioned before, you're not getting the real-time imaging, which means that after you've started this procedure, there can be things that are changing within the skull that it's not going to be able to uh, compensate for. And certain procedures like deep brain stimulation where you do multiple insertions, so they're almost always bilateral because you put two electrodes in, uh, well, there's actually studies that show the second the second electrode can be less accurate than the first, primarily because, or the were believed to be because of brain shift and deformation and swelling. So it just shows how important it is for that uh, accuracy. Um, you know, as far as pricing goes, we're shooting for likely in the seven hundred thousand dollar range. Although that's going to depend a lot on where the markets are when we when we launch for the capital equipment, and we're anticipating probably in the ballpark of about fifteen hundred dollars US for um, consumables for procedure. But again, that's going to depend on the specific application. You know, the bare bones consumables are going to be, you know, custom uh, specialized drapes for this, uh, adapters and sleeves for the various different instruments. You know, future products that we're looking to roll out may have actuated insertion, actuated rotation, different ablation instruments and other tools, right? So those would be a little bit different, but the general bare bones is, you know, what are the different adapter sleeves to let us put other commercially available biopsy or ablation or deep brain stimulation devices, um, you know, into the robot. And then inside the MRI scanner, um, as far as I'm aware, there's really no commercially available system that's out there yet. I know there's a few uh, emerging systems that are coming out there. Um, things like the ClearPoint device are a manual uh, platform here that can be attached to the head. My understanding is that is very, very expensive per procedure. Um, I've heard numbers on the ten dollars to $15,000 U.S., for one frame and for something like deep brain stimulation, often they'll put two of those frames. So those procedures are not making the hospitals money. They, you know, I've heard, you know, relatively good things from a lot of, you know, academic centers that can afford to essentially lose money on every procedure, but get the accuracy that they want. Yeah. Um, and I know they're looking primarily to pivot applications towards gene therapy delivery, which is something we also have, you know, interest in, but for a, a DBS procedure, um, it takes a long time to do the procedures. It doesn't really give the flexibility. It doesn't necessarily have the rigidity that we want. So that's where this robotic platform comes in of how can we have a really fast, easy to use, rigid robotic platform that automatically aligns and doesn't need these iterative uh, steps to, you know, to be aligned. Um, and then we also feel very strongly that the uh, number of degrees of freedom uh, and flexibility that a robotic system has means we don't need to be, for example, attaching it and manually putting it at an entry point and then just doing alignment or tweaking. We can attach this robot to the base of the bed, have a very large workspace, and really pick any part that's within a reasonable workspace uh, to target it, which to, to us really is going to streamline this uh, 
workflow tremendously. And, and the advantages really come out when you start having multiple insertions like DBS uh, and also uh, things like stereo EEG, which can be 10 to 20 electrodes you want to put inside the brain using the robot for that. The, these advantages multiply tremendously the more insertions you have over some of the competing systems that are out there. Okay. And you've been on the mode recently, been presenting at a number of high profile events. How's the system been received and how have they gone? Yeah, it's been uh, been really uh, exciting last couple of months since I took over as CEO of the company. Uh, we were uh, recently out at the LSI conference where we uh, were speaking with a lot of folks and showing off the new technologies. And we had a tremendous amount of really, really exciting feedback. I'm, I'm really glad to see it's very much validating to me to, you know, get this feedback from the business community. Um, and then since then, we've also uh, been at engineering conferences, uh, had a lot of good feedback from engineering conferences of you know how exciting they are about the technology, seeing where we're going with this, seeing how it's really starting to get commercialized. Uh, and then when I've spoken with clinicians, uh, there were some clinicians at the last conference I was at. We've also brought uh, some key opinion leaders in to give us feedback on these systems. You know, Everybody is really, really excited about this. Uh, in particular, this idea of one, streamlining the workflow, and two, just having this really compact device that we can use to get take advantage of uh, the real-time imaging feedback has been tremendous. Uh, and I'm excited to be going out to a neurosurgery conference uh, in less than two weeks. Uh, and then after that was another uh, investor conference here in uh, you know, our home uh, Boston area as well. So you know, it's been really, really exciting. And you know, we're looking forward to uh, you know, getting this next, next round of funding put together uh, pretty soon. Um, and then from there, we have a, a lot of exciting developments that we anticipate happening. Cool. So you touched on a couple of things there. How how has the business been funded in the past and how is it going to be funded into the future? I know you've got some exciting plans there. Sure. So, uh, you know, up to this point, we've brought in uh, about $3.4 million in seed funding. So that was our previous funding round. Uh, at this point, we're putting together what we're referring to as a Series A round. Uh, which is going to be bringing in between three and a half to $5 million. And the primary goal of that is to get us through building this uh, work on the beta prototype, the commercial prototype of the robot, um, getting us through the uh, appropriate safety testing that we need to begin our first in human studies in parallel with that, doing some preclinical studies, including cadaver studies. And then we're really targeting uh, early uh, 2024 for our first in human studies. And that's really the focus of this next round that we're looking to bring in they said in the three and a half to $5 million round. And we're excited that we've already brought in uh, a couple of investors uh, through uh, convertible notes. And we anticipate bringing the rest of this round in, I would say, within the next one to two months. Okay. So are you accepting new investors at this time? Could anyone still invest in the company who's listening to the podcast? Absolutely. And in fact, this is the uh, the perfect time. We're actually officially opening up this uh, this next round of funding. And as I said, we're looking to bring in between three and a half to $5 million. Um, and the three and a half will get us really to this first in human study we're looking to do. Uh, I personally would like to be able to bring in a little bit more than that so that we can start paralyzing our process. What I'd really like to be also working towards is, you know, all of our user experience studies, formalizing the requirements, bringing everything under design controls, uh, and start working on the next version of our clinical system, effectively the final clinical device, uh, because that's going to get us to market faster. So I'm Really excited. This is a perfect time to get involved. And anyone that's interested, I'd be more than happy to uh, speak with them. Yeah. And how, how would they get in touch with you for that? Um, so if you go to our website, we have some information on there. If you just uh, email uh, IR, so it's Investor Relations at uh, AMED Robotics, that works. Uh, you, know, you can find my email if you just uh, send me a message on, uh, on LinkedIn as well. Uh, so it's pretty straightforward to, to get in touch with us if you have any interest. Uh, 
I'd say if you just check the website, it has the contact information for everybody. So that's probably the easiest bet aside from uh, just tracking me down on LinkedIn, which everybody seems to be able to do these days. Fantastic. So, so far then, what have been some of the biggest challenges you faced in the, the development phase? Sure. Um, so really what we're trying to do is just make sure that the system as, as you know, clinically viable as, as, as necessary or as, as, as we can, right? And this is what's so important. Uh, as we've developed the system, uh, not just to aim, but I'm going to go back, let's say, 15 years of how we've been doing this development over time. You know, we started uh, actually developing the system for prostate applications. And I would say the MRI-compatible robot technology worked beautifully. Everything was really, really, um, yeah, very good outcomes. Uh, the compatibility looked great. Uh, we ran these first-in-human studies. They actually ran perfectly. Everything uh, went the way it was anticipated. The problem is there, we had a much harder time, at least at that time in the U.S., uh, really figuring out what the market was going to be for that and how we can how we can work on that. Essentially, we could get, you know, very, very precise biopsies inside of the prostate uh, based off of imaging. So you could find something that looks suspicious. Let me take an image and let me get that. But at least the way the, uh, you know, the reimbursement works and, you know, effectively, how can we run this within the U.S. hospital system? It turned out to be very, very expensive to do what typically could be done in a doctor's office under ultrasound. Um, it worked way better. Um, I still very, very strongly advocate that. Uh, I really hope we're able to push that through. And there might be some international markets where the healthcare systems uh, are incentivized differently, where that actually has a tremendous advantage. Um, but we pivoted into the neurospace because and that's where we need to make sure you get really, really high precision. These are super mission critical procedures. Um, you know, you can do diagnostics like biopsy, but if we're doing more on the therapy side, whether it's deep brain stimulation, lead placement, brain cancer ablation, delivery of gene therapy, all of those need to be done with really, really high precision. And that's where this tremendous benefit came in. So I think a lot of our journey has been figuring out, you know, really where can we apply this technology where it has the the best and the strongest uh, business sense? You know, we've teased out what I would say all of the technical risk over the last 15 years. I have very, very high confidence in putting our devices inside the MRI scanner, getting the accuracy that we need, getting the trajectories of the motion that we need, doing registration, um, reducing the, um, you know, essentially the effect on image quality. All these areas I think we have really strong confidence on. Uh, on the engineering side, we've built up a really strong engineering team, so I'm very confident that we're going to be able to get the precision, the repeatability, the stiffness we need on the robot. You know, a lot of our work has been how do we make sure the, the workflow is correct, the business case is right, and that we're really solving the right problem. Yeah. Hey, can you discuss any major setbacks that you've experienced and, and what you actually learned from those? Um so as I mentioned, through the development, I think really iterating and steering this in the, the right direction makes the most sense. So we started off with the grant-funded you know, academic robot. Uh, and then one of the things that we noticed there is we'd made some uh, you know, trade-offs in the size and the configurations of the robot. Uh, and one thing I noticed is that every neurosurgeon, the first thing they do when they grab a robot is take it and shake it and see how stiff it is because they're used to working with essentially a big steel frame. Uh, and if you look at the design iterations of our robot, if you look at what came out of a lot of our grant-funded work, you know, a few years ago, it was kind of this single-sided remote center motion mechanism, right? And then what we've changed to uh, more recently is this two-sided arc, and it actually looks a lot more like a traditional stereotactic frame. Uh, and this really gave us, uh, one, the rigidity and the accuracy that we need. In fact, uh, a number of the folks on our team were involved with... Uh, commercial industrial robotics and feel we can get down on that, you know, 50 micron or so accuracy that a traditional industrial robot is able to get. Um, but um, the other side of that is, you know, we needed to make sure that this was 
you know, compact and able to fit in there. So, you know, we, we came up with what I think is a really, really nice elegant solution that looks and feels a lot like a stereotactic frame. It fits into the workflow, but it has all these advantages of being able to automatically align. You can press a button, have it dock and get out of the way. You can press another button that goes back to exactly where it is. So it should be faster, more accurate, more streamlined workflow, less chance of uh, human error. And then the whole system integration is going to be really important as well. So your planning software is completely integrated, uh, you know, with the robot to make sure it goes to, you know, exactly where you want without having to manually enter things in or tweak the, uh, you know, the plan. Okay. And what do you think so far to date, what's been the biggest achievement of AIM and why has it, why is that the most, um, yeah, what, what, what's your biggest achievement and why is it so? Yeah, so really what, I, what what's really unique about our system is the ability to set up an MRI scanner with this very compact device and have really high precision motion inside an MRI scanner while we're imaging. And that last part is really critical, right? We want to be able to have a robot that can actually move while we're doing imaging because then we can do a few really unique aspects. One is if you're trying to insert an applicator, we can watch that applicator or instrument go in and make sure you hit the right target. Right. But what's almost even more important than that is once you're in place, a lot of times we want to do monitoring of therapy delivery. So something like uh, thermal ablation, we can actually watch the temperature maps. Uh, MRI has the ability to give us MR thermometry, which gives us the temperature in the area, relative change in temperature in the area. If we, for example, integrate that over time, we can actually create a thermal dose map that tells us where exactly is there going to be necrosis in the tissue and map that onto the boundary of the tumor itself. So if we're looking at the tumor therapy application, we actually ran a uh, preclinical study in live swine uh, about two months ago now. And to the best of my knowledge, this is the first time anybody's ever done this entire procedure, including the planning robotic alignment of a drill, drilling through a robotic drill guide, um, and then robotically inserting an applicator, rotating it into position, and then monitoring that therapy completely within the MRI suite. So we're super excited by this ability to really take this entire procedure and take advantage of robotics and real-time imaging and real-time therapy uh, delivery monitoring uh, all at the same time. And for us, that was a huge achievement. And we're looking to you know, bring this into the next uh, commercial version of the robot very soon. Yeah, fantastic. And you've mentioned that you're growing the engineering team at the minute and being in some really intelligent characters. What do you look for when you're hiring for your, for your team? Actually, that's a really, really good question. Uh, and we have a, a really broad set of different backgrounds, and I think that's really uh, important that we can get all of the different perspectives. So uh, a number of the folks we have are experienced engineers that have worked in industrial robotics uh, community before, in addition to the medical side. So one part is we, we need people that understand, you know, how do you design for manufacturing? On the research side, it's really nice to be able to show that the technologies work and we can tease out what I would call the technical risk of getting the system there. But on the other side, we need to combine that or balance that with um, the ability to really design something to get the accuracy we need, the precision, the repeatability we need, uh, and also taking into account the design for manufacturing while we're at it. So if you look at our team, we have a couple folks that have been in the robotics industry for a really long time, industrial robotics specifically. We also have folks that came out of my research lab, in fact, PhDs that came out of research lab that have been working on developing control electronics and these systems for, you know, five plus years. Uh, and they really have this real understanding of the underlying technology and the systems. And to me, it's having this combination of, you know, these different fields. And then on top of that, we also have folks that have experience in the medical device industry, which is so critical because obviously we have a lot of our own uh, 
nuances that we need to think about in our development process to really formalize this because uh you know unlike a lot of you know software development efforts where we can you know hack together something like an app get it on the market in a month and see what happens obviously we have to follow a very very strict um, design process uh so i think it's really important to get this mix of you know really good professional engineers um really good researchers uh and then also folks that really understand the medical device space and then having this you know really nice collaborative team of everybody working closely together. Right. So how do you create that collaborative environment? You know, I think some of this comes out of, uh, you know, our academic background where we've really just had a very, very collegial um, environment. In fact, uh, you know, in a uh, past life, I founded um, a med tech accelerator called uh, Practice Point here at uh, Worcester Polytechnic Institute. It was funded by the state of Massachusetts. And the whole idea of this was to drop point of practice, clinical care scenario. So operating rooms, MRI suites, uh, intensive care unit, uh, motion capture lab, like rehab, uh, one bedroom apartment for um, home health care with um, office spaces, uh, pods for the different companies to work. We have manufacturing co-located. And we really tried to build this whole collaborative environment. Uh, Aid Medical Robotics is a platinum member of this society along with uh, of this uh, um, organization and facility. Uh, along with a number of other medical device companies. So we get this uh, relationship. Uh, we have a lot of medical device companies that are all in the same space together. We get a lot of academics that are all in the space together. And it really builds this, you know, I I, I find it a fun, a very interactive, um, you know, environment as opposed to, you know, we don't really want a very, you know, rigid uh, corporate environment. Let's put it that way. I think it, it really encourages, uh, you know, collaboration and discussion and just uh, just trying things. Okay, cool. And so let's let's move on to like, the future. So what are the challenges that you foresee that are going to affect the business moving forward? Sure. So there's both the uh, the technical side and the uh, the business and the clinical side. On the technical side, uh, I really just want to make sure we uh, keep the wheels turning and are able to move at, at full steam ahead. You know, my with my engineering background, I really just want to, you know, pretty much get anything out of the way uh, so that we can go full full steam ahead and really get this pro prototype built, get the system to market, get us developed as, as fast as possible. And I want to be able to run as many different tracks in parallel as we can. And that's why bringing in the funding is so important because, you know, we could be very, very lean and get us to, let's say, a first in human study immediately. But if we don't develop all of the uh, you know, appropriate design controls and the user requirements and do the uh, clinical system development the appropriate ways as we're going along, essentially, we're kicking the can down the curb. And that's just going to bite us later in terms of it's going to cost us more, actually, at the end of the day. It's going to take us longer. It's going to take longer to get to market. Um, and it's just going to cause problems and lose momentum. So in my mind, it's really about you know, how do we maintain this momentum and run as many of these parallel tracks as possible. Uh, and then on the uh, business side, we're really working out what our business case is so that we can be the most convincing um, to investors. Um, and at the end of the day, more importantly, to the clinicians, the patients, and the, the hospitals. Uh, and we have a real, really, really strong case. And we're trying to formalize this so that we can really, really tell that story effectively. Yeah. And what do you think about some of the wider challenges that face surgical robotics as an industry? And what do we have to overcome as a as a collective in order to get wider spread adoption of robotics? So, you know, in my mind, um, is I think there's really a huge opportunity for smaller, more application-specific robotics. Um, you know, there's a lot of, you know, really interesting, cool new stuff that's coming out in the soft tissue abdominal surgical robotics space. And, you know, that area is, you know, somewhat crowded, but again, there's a lot of really interesting technologies coming out of it. But where I think there's going to be a, you know, huge surge of new technologies is much more compact, much more specialized to a specific anatomical area or a specific clinical need. 
Uh, and these can be lower cost devices. They can be much more portable. Uh, and I really, really think there's this uh, this need for these kinds of devices that can go into not even necessarily you know the top top academic hospitals. Like how can we, you know, I know it sounds like kind of a buzzword, but democratize this, right? Can we have lower cost devices that can be in community hospitals? Can we really extend this to the point that, you know, more people can take advantage of, uh, you know, surgical robotics and the advantages um, that they offer and by more people, the patients, but also the clinicians, right? If we can find ways, you know, again, for this neurosurgery robot, we can probably get this in a lot of hospitals that maybe weren't doing, you know, these high level neurosurgery procedures before, but now we can enable them to really take on these challenges, right? Because they don't need this really fancy custom, you know, neurosurgical operating room anymore, you know, having the robot in a, you know, a diagnostic MR. And that's not really out, you know, too far out there because there are sites right now that do things like uh, thermal ablation where they'll take a patient, they'll place the ablation applicator in the operating room, wheel the patient to a diagnostic MRI, and then use the MRI for uh, essentially monitoring the therapy delivery. So I really don't think it's that big of a jump to say, hey, why why are we m- moving this patient between the OR and the MRI uh, intraoperatively and not just do the entire procedure you know, at one time in there? So I think there's a big advantage there. The size is the other one, bringing robots down to the point that they're smaller, more compact, uh, portable, and ultimately also can we reduce the uh, the costs of both the robot itself and the per procedure costs to make it as, you know, again, usable as possible by as many hospitals as possible. Yeah. So you mentioned there's, there's companies doing specific, very specific robots for specific um, use cases. Who are you excited about? Which companies are you looking at and tracking? You know, that's a really good question. Um, again, I, I obviously I'm, I'm biased and I'll talk uh, real briefly about ours before I jump into other companies. But the idea here is that, you know, if we can have a robot that's specialized in neurosurgery and have a really compact device, we could also do something similar for abdominal. We could do something similar for possibly prostate applications, you know, along, along those lines, right? So there are some very compact devices out there now that you can, you know, strap on a shoulder or strap onto the body, right? These really compact type uh, robotic devices. Uh, there's other ones that can clamp, you know, to the side of the OR table, or there's some microsurgery robots that are out there now that we can use for, let's say, you know, eye surgery, or some folks are working on ENT and trying to do uh, throat surgery, including, you know, little snake-like robots that can go down, you know, inside the throat. Um, wouldn't surprise me if these can be used for things like, you know, cochlear implants or other ENT applications down the road. Um, really all these different areas where we can, you know, get robots, you know, inside the body with very small devices. Um, and again, they might be very well be specific to a particular, um, you know, particular application as opposed to, you know, the large, more generic, um, you know, do everything type robots. So yeah, what, what, co- so just go into some of the companies that you've seen that you're excited about there then. Um, so, uh, so actually one of my, uh, colleagues that I worked with in uh, graduate school, um, you know, Bob Webster, I'm very excited about this idea of this, uh, virtuoso, which is these very compact little robots that can go down and think of almost like, you know, a little snake-like type robots that can go in very compact cavities and do procedures. And in fact, uh, there's some research work here at, at WPI as well related to little compact snake-like robots that can go down in your throat and doing surgeries in other parts of the body. So those kinds of things to me are, are very exciting. Um, there's also these more, uh, you know, microsurgery type, uh, type robots out, that are out there as well. I think that's a, a really good, um, you know, application for this, um, let's see, I'm trying to think of a few specific examples off the, uh, the top of my head here. Um, I think another good example could be something like, uh, you know, microbot that makes these, uh, very small, very compact devices. Uh, and that one might be more for, um, 
you know, catheter type placements. But again, it's a very compact, you know, in case, that case, I believe it's more or less a single use version of a catheter placement robot, right? You know, these are, these are ways that we can get these and get these into hospitals that don't necessarily want to put up, you know, enormous capital costs or have enormous uh, procedure per procedure, um, you know, costs. Right. So that, that's kind of the, the general, uh, you know, theme there's a, there's a, there are a number of companies, both, uh, you know, larger companies as well as more emerging companies that are coming out with these, you know, smaller robots that we think have a huge opportunity. Yeah. Okay. And there's, there's obviously a lot of changes at some of these larger organizations at the minute. There's, um, there's layoffs in the industry. What opportunities do you think that creates for you? So, uh, obviously I don't want to see people being, uh, being laid off. That's obviously a terrible situation, but it does make a very rich market of folks that have a, a lot of expertise. Um, and, I think I would tell anybody that's going through this right now, you know, keep an eye out for the smaller companies. So, you know, once we bring in this funding round, we'll likely be bringing in additional folks. And, and even some of the folks that we have on board were actually at uh, other medical device companies and medical robotics companies before they before they joined us. So, it, you know, there is a huge opportunity. There can be some really exciting, uh, you know, applications out there with these, you know, smaller med tech companies. Uh, and a lot of times having that expertise of working for a uh, large surgical robotics company or a large med tech company really understanding, as I mentioned before, it's important to have somebody that understands the med tech industry and the regulatory process, you know, bringing that to a smaller company that may not have that expertise, you could actually be a tremendously valuable asset to that company. Yeah. And what advice would you give to people looking to enter into surgical robotics, whether that's from a um, academic background or also a wider medical devices background? Um, I think one of the things that's really important in medical robotics, and quite frankly, this probably applies to robotics as a whole, is that multidisciplinary background is absolutely mission critical. You know, I think it's really hard to go into this role being a pure mechanical electrical engineer, pure mechanical engineer, or pure electrical engineer, or pure uh, you know computer science person. Right? You really need to understand system integration, uh, especially as these systems get more complex. We start adding imaging, we start adding um, intelligence to them. Right. It's, it's all about this system integration and both within the robot itself, uh, but also how do we tie it in with the hospital systems like medical imaging. Right. So I think really having this very, very strong multidisciplinary background is going to be important for uh, folks that are going into uh, medical robotics. It's also really important to being understand, being open to understanding the clinical problems. I think a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of times folks go into, you know, injury jobs without necessarily really understanding the context. And, you know, it applies everywhere, but especially in the medical device industry, you need to put yourself almost in the shoes of, the surgeons, right, and try to understand what they're doing, what are their pain points, uh, how can we address that, right? So we're really working, you know, working with folks that have a good understanding of how we can go about uh, taking advantage of the, you know, knowing the clinical applications, knowing a broad background of engineering, uh, and also being really good problem solvers and systems engineers. Yeah, fantastic. And, and over the next 10 years then, um, what factors and what drivers do you think are going to drive the technology of surgical robotics? Yeah, that's a really good question. I, I know everybody likes to talk about um, AI and imaging and the high level, you know, planning and automation side of things. And and that's a huge part of it. That's going to no doubt be a major uh, aspect to this. But, you know, I don't want people to think that, you know, design of these robots is dead, right? There's a tremendous opportunity to also look at the mechanical design, the electrical design, coming up with really unique new mechanisms at you know, especially as we start making these more compact, portable devices, uh, you know, other companies are working on things like magnetically controlled robots that can go through, um, you know, the intestines, for example, or little pill-like robots that can crawl around on their own, right? Things like that. There's a huge amount of uh, opportunity, in my mind, on the technical side, on the engineering development side for new 
mechanisms and new approaches. Uh, so to me, that's really, really exciting. So, you know, I don't want to in any way downplay the um, opportunities that are out there in the, the AI and the automation side of things. In fact, we're obviously pushing forward in that as well. Um, you know, again, in the past life, I've actually had some pretty large NIH grants for trying to do surgical task automation. So I, you know, that's an area that's near and dear to my heart. And we're absolutely going to be looking at that as far as our company is concerned. And as most of the companies are concerned, but I also just really want to emphasize to me, I think there's a, a really lot that can go into developing these new types of devices that are out there. And probably what's going to be even more important is the integration of really thinking about the electronics and the software and the automation all at one time, right? How can we really integrate these into really novel new devices? Okay. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much for your time today, Greg. I appreciate you being on the podcast. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Henry. I really appreciate it. Cheers. Bye-bye. <laughs>